This podcast is presented by DistroKid, an incredible service for musicians that helps you upload your songs to all music streaming platforms from iTunes to Spotify and Apple Music, then pays you revenue from your songs all in one place. They've got a really cool new feature called Splits that allows you to add collaborators so you can pay your co-writers and fellow musicians without needing an accountant. To get 30% off your first year's DistroKid subscription, just head to distrokid.com slash VIP slash hard times. Welcome to the first ever podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Bohm. If this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. This is episode 114, and my guest this week is Tom May of the band The Menzingers, who I will be sharing the road with over the next several weeks as they celebrate the 10-year anniversary of On the Impossible Past. Uh, I've known Tom for a long time. We toured together uh, in 2011, Touche, Title Fight, and The Menzingers, and Dead End Path uh, toured the U.S., and um, we're just so honored to be a part of this. Uh, I really love Tom. I really, really love this band, and uh, this conversation was awesome. This tour starts tomorrow in New Jersey with four nights in Asbury Park, but head on over to toucheamore.com slash tour to check all of the dates uh, we are more than likely coming to your town and uh, even potentially playing multiple nights there. Uh, like I said, I'm really excited. And I want to let you know that if this is your first time here, there's a bonus episode available right now. If you head on over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon, where Tom answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. Uh, you can hear that for as little as $3 a month. You'll get uh, access to a ton of bonus episodes, bonus radio hours, all sorts of stuff. I'm keeping a tour journal as I've been out. Um, so yeah, uh, head on over there, check that out. And uh, without further ado, here is my conversation with Tom May of the Menzingers. What's up, Tom? It's so good to hey, see you. Good to see you as well. Are you, uh, uh, so you guys, you mentioned you guys are uh, getting together and writing like, or writing, are you guys writing and rehearsing or is it mostly rehearsing? Because you have this 10, this this 10 year anniversary tour coming up that I'm doing with you, which I'm very excited (laughs) about. Is that what you're rehearsing for? Are you guys working on a new record or what? Yeah. So we uh, had set the time so that we'd be writing and then we left a bunch of room to rehearse and we ended up doing way more writing each time that we've done one of these tours. We just wait till the last minute. And I'm like, okay, all right, well, we got to rehearse the old stuff. We just get so excited about writing. And funny thing about a record that came out 10 years ago is that it's a lot easier to play now. So, uh, you know, kind of like shooting a little high back then with getting a little complicated that we thought, and then we play it now. And we're like, wow, that's so much more fun to play now. So it'd take a little bit less, uh, rehearsal time, but yeah, we've been meeting up, uh, basically every day, a couple times a week in our studio space up in uh, Kensington and Philadelphia and just writing. And it's been, uh, it's been a fucking blast. 
let me ask you this when it comes to rehearsing the record that came out 10 years ago um speaking from my own personal experience like there's always going to be the songs on that record that work that you're always going to play you know that have become probably staples in your set list throughout the you know over these last 10 years yeah but what about the songs that you feel just had a hard time connecting live like are there are there (laughs) any of those on this record that you're just like oh no like this one might be tough you don't have to name it you don't have to name it but like do you have any of those absolutely yeah there's it goes kind of goes both ways in that regard one is that we forgot about some of the songs we're like hey actually now that we can play them well they are kind of good we should have been playing them the whole time people seem to like them sure and then the other side to get to it and i'm like oh god you know this is one of them is is kind of a long in the tooth song i'm just waiting Uh for it to get over by the end but uh we've only done it three times so far and people seem to really enjoy it but yeah it is really funny to kind of look back on it and well, because now it's beyond that point. So there was a point where you're like, fuck, why did we record it that way? Like, why did we write this, uh, you know, bridge? What? And now it's just so far in the past. And it's like, OK, I get it. We did one 10 year for our first record. And there's like aspects where like there's certain songs that we just never really played live that much because early on we felt that it just never worked. And then you have that awesome feeling where you're like, when you do play it, now because people have sat with the record for so long that like the songs you didn't expect would connect all of a sudden do and it's like it's such a fulfilling feeling to be like wait a minute people know the words of this song now holy shit even the songs i was just talking shit on like that happened at the last three shows where we did that record and it's uh yeah it's pretty crazy it's incredible half of it like i was saying is because we couldn't really pull it off too well live uh and the other half is just we just you know Back then, we would just put all the songs that we thought people would like the most towards the front of the record because we were like, "Yeah, we got a classic, yeah, get people to like it," you know, like front heavy. Uh, and now to see people connect with those other songs, it's yeah, it's, it's wild, and I can't. I hope we get to see more of that. Thanks, uh, good to know that happened to you guys. Yeah, man. Um, also, I'm so. <laughs> it's so funny. So when we meet up, uh, we just before that we're doing support for Coheed and Thrice in Europe. And then we literally fly just straight to New Jersey. And then we (laughs) are in New Jersey for three or four days. And then we are doing four nights in New Jersey with you. Oh, so you're going to be there three or four days before that. Yes. (laughs) And let me tell you, I've never... driver's license. Yeah, I was about to say, I've never spent a lot of time in New Jersey. Never spent a lot of time in Asbury Park. But um, now I kind of feel like I'm going to be the mayor of the town by uh, by the time we leave. Oh, yeah. Like everywhere in the world, Asbury Park has changed a lot uh, very quickly. Uh, maybe, you know, a lot more so than other places, but it is such a magical place. It, you know, just we have such a nostalgic, uh, 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 you know, uh, association with the place and we have so many great memories there. But it really is. It's like a beach town um, with all kinds of really cool and interesting architecture and murals. And it just came up in that like punk rock and roll kind of uh situation and scene and it's amazing like i think you guys are gonna have a great great time be awesome awesome i'm gonna be hitting you up for recommendations because um yeah there's uh with a lot of downtime <laughs> a lot of a <laughs> lot, lot of downtime uh i'm excited though um i'm also i'm also amped because this is the first time that we have toured together in over 10 years you know like so that's, long that's yeah. gonna be such a blast um obviously we've played festivals and things like that since touring together which for listeners, uh, that tour was Title Fight, Touche, Menzingers, Dead End Path, which is like such a ridiculous banger of a tour. Yeah, it's um, absurd. I have the the tour poster is one of the, the few tour posters that I have hanging up in my house. 
and it's Aww. framed downstairs right in the next to the bathroom. And so, so many times when people are coming over, they go down, they're like, that tour happened. I'm like, yeah, that was, that was a tour. That was fucking incredible. And that was, that was like six weeks long, I think. Dude, it was, it was uh, long. It was yeah. long. And I remember uh, also I was the oldest person on that tour. I remember <laughs> I remember noticing that where even the guy that was tour managing title fight who seemed older because he had this very like, I don't know, like stern presence to him. When I found out how old he was, I was like, oh, my God, I'm older than that guy, too. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> yep. That's really funny to think. And it's funny to think of how much older we are now than you were that like everyone is older. Than yeah, you yeah, yeah. Now. And looking back on it, it's like that tour was just a bunch of you know, 23 year old kids lifting weights and shit. Yeah, it was goofy spray painting things. It was that was really fun. Yeah, I uh, I I've always referenced that tour as Camp Nowhere tour where it was just <laughs> It was like a lot of young 20 year olds just having a really, really good time. That was uh, yeah, that's one for the books for sure. Every time it gets brought up or I think about it, I still have like a tour shirt for from it that for it was just like title fights, to, like the the tour design on the front with like the dates on the back. It doesn't list the other bands, but it's like it's, yeah. it's such it's such nostalgia for me. Um, yeah, such a such a good time and place tour. Um, you're from are you from I know the band's out of Scranton. Are you from mm-hmm. Scranton originally? Yeah, so we, uh, Joe and I were, my family's from Scranton, and uh, okay. all of our families are basically from Scranton, except for uh, Greg's. And uh, I was born down here in Philadelphia, lived here for till I was four or five. Uh, and maybe, yeah, around four or five. And then we moved back up to Scranton, and that was where I grew up. And that's where I grew up in Westside, because Scranton, you know, it's not a huge place, but I grew up in Westside. Joe grew up in Southside. Eric grew up in uh, North Scranton. And then, Greg grew up a little bit outside of Scranton in a place called Lake Ariel and his family was from Long Island mostly. And, uh, yeah, his, and his, he started being with my brother cause my brother went to a school outside of Scranton and met up with a bunch of the kids who lived up there. And that's kind of, you know, how we, how we ended up linking up with him. Not kind of, it is how we ended up linking up. But yeah. We grew up in Scranton and we moved down to Philly like, uh, I don't know, like 15 years ago, I think. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, the first, you know, the first question that I usually ask musicians is when they were growing up, uh, what was the first thing that they connected with musically that felt like it was theirs? Maybe not being some, maybe not something that was being like played in the house by parents, but something that like gave you, made you feel like you had your own identity. Sure. I, uh, so my grandfather would play the tin whistle, like an Irish whistle with uh-huh. his, um, guys that would come and he had like a teacher that taught him and there'd be people who played piano and they would come and sing all these like traditional Irish songs i remember they had an electronic keyboard in the basement and i remember the first time they had like uh almost like a tab kind of thing up but i was up there and playing along and hitting a note that was in the same you know sounded good with what they were playing and that was like the first time that i really felt that kind of power with music you know it was like oh i'm making something like blowing off firecrackers or something but it's you know resonates with you and i think that that's probably the first time that i felt that way what about uh what about find like what about discovering like a band or an artist or something like that? Oh that, my like, God. Yeah. That like yeah, that you found on your own. Oh, sure. So I would go right to the, the you know, like the first time finding punk rock with the, I don't know. Cause I guess, how do you find it on your own? That's a good question. I was thinking back of like stuff that I used to sit and listen to the radio with a tape recorder and wait for a song that I really liked. And then you'd push the record button and you'd be able to save it, you know, and make like little, yeah. little tapes. But man, what was the first one that I found for me? Had to have been oh so uh well I guess I didn't find them but the Descendants was for me, me and my friend group I remember going in yeah uh, someone had a picture of Milo 
well, one of the cover arts uh, painted on a leather jacket at like a, at the mall or something. And I saw that and then I saw that CD and I uh, got and then got that and brought it. And then we were able to play it on my friend's CD player and kind of everyone ended up getting into the descendants after that. So it was, it was Milo Goats College and listened to it religiously over and over again. Was was it a thing where like you saw the design on the leather jacket and you were like, that's got to be music related. And then you ended up just finding what the CD was. Did you ask the person like did the definitely did not ask the person That is for sure. (laughs) No, I just just assumed it was some kind of music thing and then saw saw the CD with that uh, painted on what, you know, the paint on the jacket, saw the CD and was like, oh, I have to I have to get that. Okay, I was going to say, it'd be funny if you went up to the guy at like Sam Goody or whatever, or whatever yeah. record store in the mall it was and was like, okay, it's like it's like a stick figure drawing with glasses. Uh, any idea? You know, that'd be pretty good. We did. It's kind of punk. I kind of, you know, my parents, well, they're not going to listen to this, but we, I did steal it. So we took it. We had to go down to the uh, part of the behind the steps in the Steamtown Mall in Scranton where you would like smash the uh the security plastic piece off you know so oh, we went yeah. down there and then we took it straight to my friend's house and, and listened to it but it would have been nice. pretty fucking funny if i went up and was like hey or like <laughs> i tried to redraw it you know <laughs> like redraw the milo <laughs> thing and just show the guy and he would immediately be like yeah i know exactly what that is <laughs> that's awesome uh did that lead to going down like the because that would have been on sst like did that lead you to like trying to find out other bands on that label or do you remember what your path was yeah, not not uh, uh, too vividly, but I do remember um, going and seeing anything else that had SST on the back of it. And I do believe that that one I had was either distributed or there was another record label's logo on it. So I'm not sure if it was, uh, um, and I could just be misremembering this, but I remember no. going in and being like, yeah, this is, we need to get this stuff. And there were a couple of other bands listed inside of the liner notes. Um, I wonder if it was like Mortem th- or something like that. S- something. I remember the SST... Because uh, there were a couple of hardcore kids that were a little older than us that would, you know, tell us about bands and, and stuff. There was a big hardcore scene in, in Wilkesbury, like where Title Fight was from. And that was, that was like a half hour, you know, away from Scranton's, which at the time seemed like another, we couldn't drive. You had to take the bus and that took like an hour. So you're like, fuck this. But uh, yeah. yeah, going in, again, all this. Oh, and it was by uh, like with other CDs in that genre situation as well. So you'd go in and be like, check that. And then that immediately led to Punkaramas. So I remember getting, uh, I think Punkarama 4 was the first one that I ever got. I had a picture of a kid in the front and his face was all beat up, you know, like black eyes and shit. And then I remember getting that. And then that really set off the, uh, you know, the rabbit hole. Sure. I'm trying to think of who was on that one. Was, was it a lot of like the, the, you know, uh, normal, you know, murder's row of like uh, epifat bands for the most part. Uh, yeah. I mean, it started out with Fight It by Pennywise. Uh, okay. Faster Than the World was like track three. Uh, 1998 by Rancid was track four. Bouncing oh, Souls. Yeah. I think that was the first time I'd heard the Bouncing Souls. Uh, I think, you know, it's funny. There was a wild card. Tom Waits was on it. I remember like being like, what is this? Uh, oh, Mill and Colin, No Effects, Oscar. Yeah, it was, it was incredible. Even Union 13. I can't remember what those comps were. They, I don't, were they just pulled from albums or were they like unreleased B sides? I can't remember. I have no, I don't know. Some of them were definitely pulled from albums. Uh, yeah. And some of them might have been B sides. Yeah. I think they were just kind of like, it's like Generator was on it. And that song was, yeah, uh, I believe much older at that time. Was there any bands looking back on that comp that um, you, 
like don't think you would have found any other way like oscar feels like a good example of one of those where like that's kind of a very cult loved band where you don't see a lot of like you know i feel like an everyday descendants fan maybe never found oscar you know sure Uh, yeah and and for us you know there's a geographic component to it too like we the bouncing souls were um regional heroes for us like not just an amazing national band you know whatever they're a great fucking band but they were the uh, uh you know deified uh, over here and oscar we always thought of as like a kind of a, a more niche southern california band you know yeah. i don't know they had like two records and i think the one guy joined the army or something that was what the lore that we always passed around but my group of friends uh specifically really fell in love with oscar so it's interesting that you chose that yeah Wow, and uh, I feel like an absolute poser right now because I don't even think I don't even think I realized they had a second record. I only know like the Idol Will Kill record or whatever. They might uh, only have one. Yeah, I you know, not the uh that's one thing I give you a caveat for this whole episode of the first. Like I don't I've definitely uh will mishmash some memories and 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 misremember things and just kind of carry that narrative through. But yeah, they Well, that's kind of the fun around of the show. Too. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of the fun of the show too where I'm I uh I foolishly expect people to uh to have a, a sharp memory of things that they did, you know, 15, 20 years ago. You're right. They do have two albums and <laughs> well, there's no one shit. before. Yeah. They have one before idol will kill. It's called treatment five. Also an epitaph. I've never heard this record. Wow. Um, there's yeah. probably someone listening right now who thinks I'm a straight up fool for never giving it a shot. So <laughs> that's on me. Um, what was, uh, was guitar the first instrument you ever learned? Uh, no, actually. So we had a, a cool program in the Scranton school district where you took a test uh, in like fourth grade. And if, depending on how you scored on it, they stuck you in, well, th- th- if you scored lower, they stuck you in chorus. If you scored higher, they gave you uh, a violin and they would let you take it home like once a week or whatever. So I scored high on that um, and got to play violin. So violin was my first instrument that I played. I need I need more from this conversation. So what is the test? Like what? It seems, oh my God. It you know, seems it's really at, crazy. To, right, it's like yeah. what you just described sounds crazy where it's like, ah, maybe not the brightest kid. Let's make him sing. Oh, yeah, he's, exactly. he's really smart. Let's give him like, a violin. So there's, there's two parts. One, I think they were like, can this kid not lose this violin? Which every kid did. Like the <laughs> amount of violins that were left at bus stops and like just got completely destroyed. So you got to be like the shittiest violins. Um, the, uh, so the test, <laughs> I've never really thought about it until you mentioned it. It was probably mostly subjective and the teacher was kind of just, you know, firing kids off into different groups or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember that, you know, I can't remember like a written component. I think you just sang and then, um, maybe they gave us a prompt to memorize the, uh, spaces and lines in a, like a treble clef, normal staff of music or whatever. Okay, so at least it's music related. I didn't know if it was. Yeah, if it, was it wasn't like, like you take an aptitude test. Yeah, like, that's math. what I thought it was, and I was like, "That's the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life." Yeah, um, no, it was. The, there was definitely like a yeah, some kind of like barrier because they didn't have enough violins to go around as well. So it was kind of like do that. And some other schools had different instruments. Like, I feel like some other elementary schools had you know they just gave out clarinets like like candy and they had recorders and stuff like that, but. John Marshall Elementary School, where I went to, they um, gave us a violin. So, yeah, that was the first one I played. How'd you do? Did you take to it? Uh, I mean, it's fun. My brother sent me, <laughs> not throwing him under the bus, but he sent me a video of his uh, very, very young son playing soccer. 
and just rip like joking about how terrible it is like it's they're the worst players ever you know so bad i bet that fourth and fifth grade violin was probably a lot like that when the teacher was trying to teach us when we went but i did no i really enjoyed it because you like once you practiced it over and over again and you got it there was like no better feeling than to be able to you did it you know you were able to play that song and uh, you could change the mood and like made everybody happy it was uh yeah it was pretty cool do you remember any songs that you learned how to play? Not, no, not, not, you know, I'm sure we had the London Bridge, uh, all the ones that use like the, 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 teach you the different intervals and all that. Like, uh, sure. Uh, did you have to do yeah, recitals? Happy birthday and shit. Yeah, we did definitely did recitals. Yeah. Yeah. How would, do you remember anything about that? Do you have any memory of those recitals? Yeah, they were in the basement of a old school that was built in the 50s that had fallout shelter signs everywhere and they had to stop school because they had to clean up all the asbestos but i remember the (laughs) stage was uh like two feet high and it was in the same room that we had a cafeteria so that's kind of like all i really remember oh and the lady from sesame street came one time not to recital but she was in that room once that's kind of Oh, I'm associating with those 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 recitals back then. Okay, so maybe when you were like really really young, that was the first time it clicked with you, where you were like, "Oh my god, I get to play on the same stage as that, the Sesame wow. Street woman." Yeah, that might be Holy it. Shit. Yeah, that that totally. I mean, definitely that was all. That was the entire world that I knew at that point. Oh, and of course, <laughs> we grew up in Scranton, so we we would go get you know pizza and pasta after the recital. So that was awesome. Yeah, as you must. Yeah. yeah. Uh. Well, what was, so after violin, like, do you remember at all what made you want to put it down and just like forget about it? Was it just a matter of like maybe different interests as you're growing up, maybe you get into sports? Was it, was there like a thing that changed that made you put it down? Sure. Yeah. So there was a, um, I took a, like a year or two, maybe two years of piano lessons, like concurrently after playing violin for like two or three years, cause my neighbor was a piano teacher. So my mom sent us over to take piano lessons with her and she wasn't the most pleasant lady and it wasn't that much fun, but I still remember, you know, I learned how to build the chords, learned how to do that. Uh, and then did that, but then continued to play violin. But I think the reason I kind of started pushing against violin was because of excuse me, getting into, so I played in like sixth grade and seventh grade, seventh grade started getting into like punk rock and guitar music or like, you know, whatever, like angry music was on the radio, like corn and stuff like that. So I kind of looked at the violin as like a, thing that i had to do after school or something that people wanted me to do so i was like fuck this um still liked it but then yeah stopped and then after eighth grade stopped for two years and then in 11th grade picked it back up again because my teacher at scranton high school offered a uh music theory class so i took the music theory class and she's like we gotta take violin too i was like okay took violin again and then the next year they offered a music theory two class and they no one else took it except me so she just let me take it at the same time as the music theory one class and just stuck me in the room across the hall and gave me like an assignment which was to kind of learn more i I don't know i wouldn't call it traditional or classical i don't know that much about music theory but i would just like write these pieces and then we would play them in the violin class so that was a, a really cool thing that she let me do but it was also the first period of the day and that was also when we used to you know get stoned a lot before school so you could just kind of go in and sit there and play with the keyboard for an hour. And it was, yeah, it was like zonked out of your mind. Just like, exactly. Oh. <laughs> sitting there stoned as fuck. Like I remember one time playing and she was like, yelling, like I didn't hear that she was in the doorway. And yeah. <laughs> Did, uh, if someone walked in that room right now and handed you a violin, do you think you still got it? 
Yeah, I bought one a couple years ago, and I keep it. No I started way. playing again. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Have you used it for any of your records? No, we do have a song. So we re-recorded our last record um, separately at our own houses and re, you know, re-envisioned the songs. And yeah. there is a version of one of our songs called "Last to Know" that heavily features the violin, but that was played by Kelly Goldsworthy. Yeah. Okay. But no, I haven't played it on any of our songs or anything. I just like to play it, uh, you know, maybe one, like once or twice a week here at my house. Yeah, and I don't know if I know this, but have you used? Have you played piano? on any of your stuff like has that yeah every record every record i've played some kind of piano or organ layer in the background i know you guys have had a lot of instrumentation but i don't know if it was maybe you who was doing it yeah greg's done some uh i've done most of it we usually usually just using a midi controller and whatever like pad synth or something that's layered somewhere but on our last record specifically on um hello exile there's lots of keys featured and i believe i played you know well not all i think most of them or all of them yeah okay uh so then what was guitar next or how did like when because obviously you're now getting into guitar music you like punk you like yeah you like all these different sorts of things like angry music as you describe um was guitar the next thing or was bass or like what where did you supposed to be a drummer that was the whole thing like i loved drums i had like fake drums set up i really wanted to play drums my parents were like drums are too expensive we are not getting you drums uh they probably also thought that they would be too loud but yeah, they were like, no, you know, well, that just makes because my brother ended up being a, a drummer. But they, yeah, they wouldn't get me. They were like, okay, your aunt has this acoustic guitar that she doesn't use. You can play that. And I was like, okay, yeah, fuck it. So they gave me an old Fender La Brea. It's like a, a all black acoustic guitar that has a Strat style head instead of like a regular acoustic head. But that was the first guitar I ever got, and that was what I started to learn how to play on. Yeah, took some lessons okay. from uh, another neighbor. And then somebody got me, I don't remember who it was. Somebody got me like a gift certificate of like six lessons from this guy in the middle of West Side somewhere. And I taught in his mom's basement and I went and took those classes. Yeah. <laughs> was he handing out the gift certificates? <laughs> he might, he probably was handing Thinking, looking back on it, I can't believe my parents let me go to this fucking guy's basement. <laughs> uh, where there was a couple times where I sat there and he just like, he was like, I'll be right back. And then he'd go upstairs and they would just be screaming for a while. And then he'd come oh back downstairs God. and be like, okay, this is what we're going to play. Yeah. So who Holy knows what's going on there? Yeah. Do you still have that guitar anywhere? Is it like in storage somewhere? You know, it got broken in like an adolescent rage by mm. me or all of my other siblings. I don't remember who broke it, but somebody like threw something and broke it. Oh, wait, no, that was a different guitar. This one uh, just kind of like went by the wayside. It wasn't an easy sure. guitar to play. I don't think it was uh, very salvageable. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Um, when you started learning guitar, was there... Did you have that moment where you like maybe you learned a Green Day song or something like that that like you were like, holy fuck, I can actually do this. Like this sounds like the thing that I'm, you know, like listening to on my own. Yeah, absolutely. That's 100 percent. It was a Green Day song. I was able to play either the 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 just kind of the root notes or the power chords of when I come around. And that was it. You know, I was so fired up about that. It's funny. I'm having flashbacks to that guy who taught me and he was teaching me stuff that I'm only learning about now, you know, like kind of stuff that's kind of complicated that I don't know why he was trying to, to jam that down at first, like the cage what? system and all that, which maybe I should have been learning when I was younger, but um, yeah, yeah, I remember like playing was, when I come what, around. Okay. What, like, what, what kind of music was he trying to have you play? Was he like classic stuff, like classic rock stuff? Or no, was he it? was like a metalhead guy. Uh, okay. He had long black hair and was really into he taught me like you know the different modes like the phrygian mixolydian dorian he started teaching me that shit 
um, which I don't remember and still don't use. I just, you know, I'll Did still you use tell him them. like you had taken like music theory classes and thought you were oh, no, the, oh, sorry, elevated the timeline. I was way younger, yeah. but this was before music theory classes came when I was like, well, not way oh, younger, okay. you know, I was okay, like okay, 17, okay. but this is when I was like 14. So, you know, an eternity, I guess. But, yeah. um, yeah, he was just trying to teach me, you know, the pentatonic scale started out, which is I'm sure a lot of people, if they heard it, it would be extremely familiar and sure. major and minor. But he got real into like, you know, Greek modes. And I was like, I don't know if I'm really into this. I just want to like play Ramon songs. <laughs> yeah, man. You're like, you, you can dial it back just a little bit here. Just a little bit. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by Anchorfish Printing. Hey, are you in a band? Do you run a label or maybe you just want to make some merch for fun? You should hit up Anchorfish Printing. They've been taking care of bands for over 15 years. I first met the owner, Michael, when my band Touche Amore started, and he was our go-to guy. You can visit what they have to offer over at anchorfishprinting.com. You can hit them up for all your merch needs, whether it's screen printing, embroidery, or maybe you just need some stickers. Mention the first ever podcast and get 10% off your order. What, uh, then what was the first band that you ever did? So I was in a band with my neighbor, Nick. Um, we came up with a bunch of different names, Hoopla. And then we switched the name to Decadence Decay. when we had two other guys from Southside join the band. One of the guys was really into the Dead Kennedys. And another one, um, another one, the bass player became a really, really good uh, professional bass player and pilot now. And he actually just texted me not that long ago where he hit me up on a social media and was like, Hey, and, uh, He's Damn. doing fucking great, which is really funny. But yeah, we would awesome. practice in the garage and we spent way more time talking about, you know, what we were going to do than actually playing. So, you know, we talked about like what kind of shows we were going to play and what kind of like clothes we were going to wear and stuff like that than, than actually playing. Well, the most important thing, especially with your first band when you're in school, is who's drawing the logo. You know, like the logo is a real big part of uh, that comes first before any music, you know, it's totally true. 100 percent. Yeah, we spent probably 75 percent of the time working on the logo and the name and 25 percent just playing. Yeah. yeah. Were you writing original songs or were you doing covers? Yeah, we were. We tried to, We, you know, couldn't. I think half of it was because we couldn't play a lot of the covers. So we had to write originals because we weren't, you know, good enough. But we yeah, we wrote originals and uh played a couple covers, but I wasn't able to play any of the Dick Kennedy songs on guitar yet when I was 15 or 14. Totally. But yeah, we wrote a couple of uh, originals. I think we had three songs maybe. Okay. Sounds about right. Okay. Yeah. And did this band play a show? We did. So this was the first show that, not the, I don't think it was the first show I ever played. I, I played, the first show I ever played was like a talent show at middle school, probably in eighth grade, covering a Blink-182 song. What song? Um, but the first show, there was a church basement, church by, by our house. And I talked to them. I was like, hey, can we have a show here? Like, how much does it cost to rent the basement? And they're like, oh, well, it's a show for the kids. You can just do that. Um, so we got a couple bands together and we borrowed the church's PA system. And we had some parents help us out. And we had the first show there. And we all got kicked out in like 20 minutes. But it was uh, it was still fun. You know, it was still kicked like. Kicked out because of. Show. Because it was rowdy, kicked out because it was loud, kicked well, out. It couldn't have been that rowdy because the... there was only like 20, 25 people there. But I think a couple kids got drunk and <laughs> it was really loud and we wouldn't turn it down. And everyone was being, you know, edgelordy, offensive, like. It's not those little punk kids. Yeah. Yeah, it's not those little punk kids. They didn't even actually have to hear anything anyone was saying. I think just like, you know, the nonverbal communication enough made everyone <laughs> so upset that they're like, this is enough. No. <laughs> 
That's awesome. At the talent show, what uh, what Blink song did you cover? Uh, we covered "Damn It." We couldn't yeah. call it "Damn It" because you can't say yeah. Damn it. Oh yeah. yeah, what did you say? This is a Blink One Eighty Two song. I think you know. Wink, wink. <laughs> something close to that. Yeah, I think it was just it said like song or cover song or something. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and did it go off? Because that's a hit. I mean, that's a. Yeah, it definitely sure didn't go off. In West Grand High or West Grand Intermediate School, people do not care about Blink One Eighty Two that much. Uh, so, but it, yeah, it was fun. The, the adults were really excited, and you know, all the kids were really stoked that their friends were doing that. And yeah, it was cool. yeah. So, what was the first band that you did that ended up recording? Uh, the first band that ended up recording. So we recorded with the the other band, but not you know multi tracked. We just did live. Uh, we figured out how to plug a microphone into the computer, and then sure taped it to like a broomstick or whatever. Uh, the first band I ended up recording with was a, 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 a ska punk band called Bob and the Saggots that we had when we were in high school and middle school. Okay, yeah, I saw, I saw, and that band had uh, was it Eric and Joe? Yeah, so the first recording was Joe, myself, our friend Corey, and our friend Curtis, who uh, uh, still plays out in as a studio guy out in Portland now. He goes by uh, Curtis Iree. But oh, yeah, awesome. we, yeah, he's, he's fantastic, still a good friend. We, um, yeah, and then Eric, Corey left the band and Eric joined. So our first split was with a power violence band called Dead Radical. We did a split so that we could, oh shit, wow. So that was the first time that I went to, we, Looked up a studio in the yellow pages of the newspaper, got the address and was like, okay, well, I'll find them. So got somebody to drive me to where the address was and it was inside of a junkyard. It was actually a like the second (laughs) story of like a a nondescript brick building, no signage and no um, windows. And it ended up being really nice inside, you know, from what I remember. But we just kind of like banged down the door and this guy, you know, busted out the door. He's like, what? I'm like, hey, we are a band. We want to record here. Like, well, how much does it cost? And it was really expensive. So we were like, okay, well, we needed somebody else to do it with us. So we got our friends in uh, Dead Radical, which was a power violence band, to split the cost with us, and we would do a split there. And that's that was the, the first thing we recorded. But the actual first time we recorded was we won a battle of the bands, and they gave us free recording time at like, a, like three hours of time in a studio. And the guy was like, yeah, well, it takes one hour to set up and one hour to tear down, so you get to record for one hour. And we went oh to this God. place like way further south of uh, where Title Fight's from down in Plymouth, Pennsylvania, in a place where we were like, whoa, we don't know what we're getting into here. Like Pennsylvania shit. And yeah, we went in and this guy, it was so fucking funny. He was farting the whole time, like just unabashedly was like, didn't give a shit or, or had a medical condition. I don't know. But uh, it was just, he would like, you know, let one rip and we'd, we like start chuckling and he wouldn't say anything. Yeah, oh, the- that's the worst. When he, when the guy's stone cold faces you during it, you're like, yeah, I don't right? react to this anymore. Oh my God. No, totally. And he was a kind of a dick to begin with. That was the first time. But yeah, the other time was with Cliff. Cliff was good. Cliff was good people. He taught me some things that we still use for recording now. He, <laughs> we went in for a door of the studio and he's just like, listen, man, if you give me a piece of shit, all you're going to get is a polished piece of shit. And I was like, oh, okay. I'm like 15. Sure. Yeah. And he said, I only have two rules. No weed, no Coronas. We're like, okay, well, we're too young to get beer anyway. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay, real quick. uh, The the three-hour session, um, I'm assuming the hour that you actually did end up recording was just live, right? Were you doing like vocals live at the same time? Because that's not No, we did everything live and then then overdubbed the vocals very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and which band was that? 
That was Bob. That was the first. Oh, that Bob was the Bob and the Sackets. Okay, yeah. it was. Okay, I think there might only have been three of us there. Okay, no, there was probably four of us there, but we called it the Vatican Sessions because uh, the, it was in an old church and they had like um, religious stuff everywhere. And we were like, "Yeah, this is you know the Vatican's part of the church. We'll call it that." And then we put a picture of, like Jesus playing baseball in the front of it. And so, <laughs> I think I, so. I think I saw. I was trying to do research on on that aspect because <laughs> like when I when I searched it on like even like Discogs, what came up for that band was uh, just songs on comps actually yeah that would probably be the only actual published stuff that we had was on comps because we didn't have like the um internet ability to publish stuff yet i had like signed up for ascap like wrote them a letter and shit like that but we all the stuff that we did was self-released we'd go to there's actually a big distribution place in philly called um not cd now fuck somebody's cursing me that i don't remember the name right now but it was where all local bands in the northeast would be able to get cd duplication replication for pretty cheap prices like cd baby wasn't CD Baby? I know exactly oh, what that is, but this one was a, a different one based out of Philly. I forget what they were called. Fuck. But yeah, we it's just right. would get it's like right. 200, 300 CDs at a time, and then just go to you know uh, Staples and print it out or whatever. So when you said you did a split with this power violence band, was it like a cassette, or was it, or did you guys actually do like a seven inch? That was no CDRs. We were like we had oh, we, yeah, you know, yeah. we we came around where it was definitely easier and cheaper for us to make CDs. Uh, Sure. Than cassettes and seven inches because no one had like a record player there. We didn't, yeah. I wouldn't even know how to find a pressing plant. But uh, the, yeah, so we would just burn them on, we would like line up a couple computers, have a party, burn all the CDs, and then stick them in the, in the cases. That's awesome. Yeah. It feels like uh, the split CD was a popular thing within your area because I know there was also the title fight Erection Kids. Split, oh, yeah. Split <laughs> CD, you know? Yep. Which, yeah. So absolutely. That, yeah. Very much uh, of the area, it seems. Um, totally. There was one from New Jersey. There, you would get them at like a record store. They'd have like a. I remember there was like a big wig. Oh man, glass eater split and a bunch of a bunch of shit like that would always be there. Like a CD that was three and three. You know. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, was there a record store in Scran that you that was like a home base? Like that is it even still there? Like did you ha- did you have something sure. like that? Yeah, we had. Uh, I think we had one of the corporate ones that became fye which was a big one okay. in the mall but we had a, a big local chain called joan ardone's gallery of sound which uh they don't have all of the locations open anymore but they have a, a couple of the locations open they're still going strong we still do like acoustic release shows there when we're when we're doing that kind of run and joe's become a, a friend of ours and that's really really fucking cool after all these years to be able to talk to him and hang out and they, those are still going strong and there's also uh but they didn't have any in scranton uh there was one in downtown scranton called embassy vinyl that was run by this guy rj and that opened when we were a little bit older like maybe towards the end of high school or like right after high school before we moved to philly and rj was super fucking cool and introduced us to a lot of music he was awesome i love that that's awesome um so then what what happens like so how did uh was the menzinger started when bob and the saggots broke up like how quickly after because bob and the saggots was a ska band and yeah, we played. We were like yeah. a quote unquote third wave Scott. Our biggest influences were like Leftover Crack and Three Eleven. Sure. So we, yeah, okay. It was like uh, uh, you know, it was a lot of fun. We fit in with that kind of scene. We were doing that, and then we had broken up. And my brother was in a band with Greg called Cosmos, which also had, uh, had a like bunch Adam of members from, from Cap- Adam, Adam from, from Tiger's Jaw right? and uh, yeah, yeah uh, uh, Wicked Phase. He was in that band. Uh, Bobby Barnett and my brother who, who they ended up make, starting Captain Were Sinking which then okay. had like Leo and Squid and all them 
And yeah, I remember, oh, man, I was living in an apartment with Joe near downtown Scranton and went on a, uh, we used to like drive out into the mountains to go smoke weed. So we'd go drive like 45 minutes in, or whatever, half hour up into the mountains and was on a blunt ride one time. I was like, hey, we've been talking to this kid who plays uh, with my brother's band. We're going to ask him to jam with us now that we don't, uh, we're not doing Bob and the Saggots anymore. We didn't really want to play ska kind of music. And I called him up and asked if he wanted to practice. And then he came down to practice and that that was it. Um, Actually, before we might be getting ahead, uh, I just wanted to ask real quick, with first tours, did Bob and the Saggots tour or was your first tour with the Menzingers? Uh, first, my first tour was actually playing guitar for that power violence band, Dead Radical. <laughs> oh, no way. So you yeah, joined yeah. that band. Yeah, just for a tour, just for a tour, which got okay. cut short. But okay. uh, that was the that was technically the first tour I ever did, where we went and played places and stayed over, went to the next place, went to the next community center, went to the next place. Yeah. How sad. long but was Bob it? Over... Seconds... Oh, sorry. yeah. How long was that? Was that power violence band's tour? So, like, how long did you actually end up going out for? Was it like two weeks, a week? No, it was like f- four days. It was supposed okay. to be longer, and then it all fell apart really quick. We just that ran out of money. <laughs> We're like, you can't do anything. Let's go home. <laughs> for uh, sure. That for was sure. really young. Yeah. Did uh did Bob and the Saggots end up doing any touring? So we never really did any touring, uh, but we did play a lot of regional shows. We would go up to Connecticut. Oh my God, there were it was just excuses for us. To, well, no, it was really fun, and, and we got to go play with we meet all these really cool people. Um, but we, I'm just thinking of the the furthest show we played was probably the Ska Fest in Connecticut, and we one of the guys was dating an older girl um, who, in our minds, she was like super old. She was probably like 24. <laughs> she was a nurse and she uh, got us a keg and we stuck it and put it in between the passenger and driver's seats and put like a jacket over it. And then everybody who was riding in the, in the car just like drank it on the way up there. And we got to this ska festival, not realizing it was in like a nice, you know, wealthy part of Connecticut where the kids' parents were kind of running everything. And we just, you know, caused a, a bunch of mayhem there and then came back. But there was oh, just wow. stuff like that. So we did that and we would go to, we played on like Bloomfield Avenue, Jersey a couple of times. And we would go down to Philly and played, um, you know, some college parties and shit like that. So there's no real like touring, but just a lot of regional kind of going around. So, uh, so then when, you know, the Menzingers ends up starting, um, how soon after the band starts, do you guys, do you guys go record? Very quickly, probably only a few months. So we used to record with this guy, uh, B.O.B. We were just joking about the other day. His his phone, his number is still on my phone. It's like made it through all of these years. (laughs) Um, but this guy's name is B.O.B. He lived in a house in the Poconos and we would drive down there and record with him. And he it was the first time we kind of like got to hang out, multi-track and really work on it and add in kind of all of our stuff. So that was only a few months afterwards. We went down and recorded like six songs, I think it was five or six songs. And then the, we started posting that on the message boards and sending it to some friends. And then someone sent it to it was just in August, actually, a good friend who's up in uh, Oakland now. And he used to be like a writer and contributor and I think an editor at Punk News. But he okay. had found it, sent it to Greg Ross, who was the guy who um, owned Go-Kart Records. And then he's the one who signed us and got us to record our first full length. Yeah, I, I'm, you know, I have I have some questions about this, Eric, because it's, it's really fascinating. One, I want to say that, like, did it become, because I feel like even when you revisit your first very first record the uh the lesson record you can hear that it's you guys 
You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like your sound was present really early on. And then just over time, it has obviously developed and, you know, you've gotten stronger and stronger what you guys do. But um, was there a thing that you guys were trying to harness and like go for early on? Or was this just or do you feel like this is just a natural sound that came out of the four of you? Yeah, totally. Uh, thanks for saying that. I think that's one thing that um, one of the biggest strengths that we have in our band is the way that we have uh well we run like completely democratic which is has a it's just an amazing thing but also you know as you could imagine and probably know it it is hard to deal with sometimes because you can't get as much done but it's totally worth it for yeah. us at a creative point because we get so many different influences and also a point that we're just friends first and uh that became a kind of top-down philosophy of us kind of deciding and talking about what we're doing and deciding together before we do it so I think one of the um, main parts of you saying that you can hear that sound in it is the fact that we all listened to the same music together over and over again. We kind of knew what we wanted and we would uh, get each other excited and, and teach each other what we wanted. And at that time, we were super into um, like, you know, against me and had just started getting into some heavier punk. And yeah, I don't think I'm not sure. Get, no, Gaslight wasn't really around. That I mean, if you listen to our band, you could hear what was super yeah, influential. Yeah. Our parents really were into, you know, Bruce Springsteen, and um, we were all huge fans of Green Day and Blink One Eight Two, and we would sit around and play together. And that kind of I think made it, it set the stage for the rest of the our, of our career. But at that time, we kind of all knew what we wanted on the same page and still liked the same thing. So as we continue to, as a band, we still are sending each other music constantly and, and getting excited about the same songs. Is there, this is kind of a fun question. Is there a specific band or a couple bands or a couple artists uh, that come to mind that would be a surprise for you think someone to hear that you guys all collectively like as an influence? Yeah, 311 would be one. That kind of, uh, I gotta say, like, we literally love 311. Like, they're a fucking great band. I haven't listened to their newest uh, records that much, but uh, there's a, a huge formative uh, part of our life. Yeah. Man, that's, that's a good, sick. there's definitely a couple bands where I think people would be kind of surprised that we, to find out that we really, really love them. I feel like 311 uh, is a great shout, though, because that's also the second yeah. time you've dropped them in this podcast. I, I, I know. It. I almost didn't I've, say it because I was like, I've already mentioned 311 twice. It's like, so good. Like, <laughs> i love it i love it i think the most shocking thing about 311 is that they're from nebraska that's the most shocking part yeah. about that now if you listen to them they rep them all the time but yeah no that it makes no kind of no sense yeah yeah like so, i mean it sounds very west coast you know like it yeah. has very you know west coast energy to it but totally. i love. I mean, it. if i got the legend right they you know did the first record or two from omaha and then all moved together into a small place in la and then yeah yeah, just kind of kept it going. But they don't, it does not sound like a band from Omaha. You figured it would, a band from Omaha would have like a Tex-Mex or like a like a country kind of vibe, you know? But, yeah. Or I mean, any like, of the Saddle Creek stuff. Saddle Creek stuff, yeah. I mean, I talked early on in the show, I had uh, Tim Casher from Cursive on, and we talked about 311 and that and how like they're like hometown heroes to like that whole squad, which is like super cool to think about. Oh, that's like, awesome. The Saddle, the Saddle Creek people like having pride behind 311. Like you wouldn't expect wow. it. But it's I never cool. thought about that, and I'm so glad that you said that. That's fucking fantastic. Yeah, I want to say that uh, I could be wrong, but I want to say whether it was mentioned on there or not. But like, I think some of Tim, one of Tim's early bands, got to open for 311, and it was like no a way, big deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When they were all still like that's so out cool. of 311. Uh, or sorry, out of out of Omaha. Um, yeah. 
the singer of that band of 311 i've seen um, i've never met him but i've seen him around because whenever turnstile plays he comes out and he like reps them super hard which is that super makes cool sense. to see yeah yeah we actually there's a, i don't think it's controversial but if you listen to turnstile you can i mean it sounds so much like a lot of early 311 in the sense that it's melodic early complicated chord sure. movements that actually groove like it's fucking sick as hell yeah a thousand percent um so what i I wanted to ask because i actually when doing research i I found this really interesting um how did you get hooked up with uh jesse cannon who produced the first your guys first record that's a yeah great question uh jesse's still a friend to this day i love um what he does he taught us a lot about being in the studio and being a band and he it was just so fucking cool that we got to go and record in new york city you know okay so that was in new york city okay well, it was in Union City, New Jersey, so right okay. right over the border, uh, for for all intents and purposes, to us. Sure. When, because we were still living in in Scranton at the time, and uh, New York City is actually closer to Scranton than Philadelphia, so we did a lot more field trips and knew a lot more people and a lot more family in in New York. But um, he Jesse Cannon worked for Greg Ross or at Go Kart Records at some kind of capacity. I forget exactly what it was. I don't know if he was a intern turned employee or or what it was, but at the time. Uh, Jesse had his own studio. He had a couple of engineers that worked for him and he was really in that world of the kind of more East coast pop punk that was, that was happening at that time. And he, you know, cut whatever deal with Greg or Greg thought it would be really good for us to go with him. And thank God we did. Cause he, you know, it, looking back on it now, it's a lot, it is so much more regimented than we would have been able to do you know what i mean what i mean by that is like we've never played to a click in our fucking lives and never would have been able to figure out how to punch things or like have been coached the right way and just going in there and then listening to jesse tell us stories about uh recording vocals for tim armstrong and for uh you know robert smith and like just giving us the advice from him that was just the most inspiring thing ever and it made us make the songs better and yeah, it was, it was fucking incredible. We got to stay at the studio and shit. It was, it was amazing. Uh, that was, that's the through line that I was so fascinated by. Cause when I was looking up his credits, I saw that he worked on the cure self-titled record, which, uh, Ross Robinson produced who did our last record. So oh, like, no shit. Yeah. Yeah. So like, uh, I mean that, and that record is fascinating to me. The fact that they like hired Ross to do it. And I, there's so many aspects of that fucking story that it was mind-blowing to me but i was seeing like oh wait so this guy worked on that record so it was like a wild you know uh six degrees of separation or whatever situation yeah, where i was like holy shit wow wow totally. um that was so cool i remember we got there and they were like none of these guitars or you can't use any of these guitars or anything <laughs> we're like okay okay sorry man. we sorry, have to man. use yours okay yeah they, they just like looked at our shit and they were like this is you can't record this uh i think you mentioned it earlier but i'm at, um, in case i missed it so like with go-kart was it literally like uh you sent them the like classic like demo submission that they actually checked out and were and backed close to that except more realistic in the sense that somebody else you know that they knew or had a yet know somebody you know so he uh, a, a friend of ours just or sorry justin august had sent them to greg greg liked oh, them okay. a lot and then sure. we met, <laughs> so we met him he's from he's from syracuse so we drive up to Syracuse, which is not that far from Scranton. It's like a yeah. three-hour drive or some shit. So we drive up there, and he meets us at a Wegmans, where he's we're like, yeah, the label's taking us out. So we go to a Wegmans, which is an East Coast, uh, like a grocery chain that has you know prepared food as well. Think of like Whole yeah. Foods, but not as you know like uh, yoga yoga ish. 
and he uh, gets there and he's wearing like um, sweatpants shorts and like an ill-fitting sweatshirt. And he's like, the airline lost my luggage. So I'm wearing my dad's clothes. And we're like, okay. And we're sitting there and we have, we're like asking him questions, pretending. And we always like all, back then and, and maybe even sometimes now he's coming hot with shit. We're like, yeah, we're fucking. So we're coming in and asking him all these questions and he's being like, yeah, well, you know, I'll send you the contract or I really, I want to put out a record for you guys. And, uh, but you, you dazzling us with all these great stories about, um, all the band. Cause anti-flag had put out a record on go-kart and that was like heroes of ours. And he's telling us the stories about them and all the shit. And then we left and, and Greg still has this in his wallet somewhere or it wasn't used to keep it in his wallet. Uh, we all wrote down how many records we thought we would sell the first record and took like a bet to see who, who got the closest. Um, and I would have to someday we'll release, you know, what it actually was, but it was just fucking funny. Like, like Joe, I think said like a million. Um, so I said, we were just like, you know, 18 year old kids, uh, from Scranton, just like get, get so excited. And then he sent us over a contract and we signed it, sent it back. And then he sent us to, uh, to New York. It was cool. Go-Kart Records is a fascinating label to me because my first introduction to that label was, uh, through vision of disorder like the long island hardcore band where <laughs> but then also like my brother listened to like the luna chicks because he was he was had yeah. like a huge like riot girl phase so like the fact that this label put out vod fucking the luna chicks but then also like the buzzcocks and like conflict and yeah anti-flag it's like had had a hand in like every single kind of subgenre of punk um yeah it was just like a label out of syracuse it's like fascinating exactly yeah i think i think uh so he was from syracuse i believe he he was operating out of they had offices in like you know brooklyn or manhattan that's okay. so they were like a new york city label or whatever but uh yeah this guy from syracuse put out all those records and it's funny he kind of like put out maybe like one record from each of those bands and i'm not disparaging greg greg you know i, sure. I haven't talked to him in many years but he still um you know, sends us emails and still sends us uh, uh, royalties from those, those records, like on time. And it's like transparent and everything. And that's real fucking cool. But it that's is a- just funny that that he's got the hand in so many of those different things to uh, to <laughs> to have the label that put out your first record for a band that has gone on to be very successful and have that first label be very transparent and open with uh <laughs> with that is that is a blessing my friend <laughs> my god we've heard so many stories i don't know how much like shit people usually talk to you on here but we've heard oh so many stories of bands like having to audit the label like getting a lawyer involved in shit no greg's just oh, been yeah. i mean he could be making it up you know i doubt it <laughs> but uh he yeah he's, he's been good to us the whole time he's been that's fantastic. amazing yeah. Uh, so then the, uh, the next record you guys did was, uh, was the Chamberlain weights record. And also I want to add, uh, I think it's awesome that, uh, we met you guys very briefly, uh, in that era, like 2009, cause we played together cause you guys were on tour with Broadway calls. Yes. And I don't think we got to know you, but is it, am I making it up? Did you guys maybe at one point stay with Elliot? Or yeah, something so like that, that was a, a, a we uh, Annie Nelson uh, from um, uh, R five and and yeah, uh, a bunch ceremony of amazing and, Philly bands and ceremony. Yeah, yeah. he we, we went to go see. I think it was you guys and maybe Title Fight. It was another band at the church, and I was talking. I was like introducing myself to Elliot, and uh, or was about to. And Annie Nelson was like, "No, I heard you guys met before." And I was like, oh, oh, yeah. We, and Ellie was like, you stayed with me at UC Santa Cruz. And that, like, 
it's kind of like the college that has all the trees and shit. It's like a hippie, not yeah, hippie, yeah, yeah. but like it's a very oh, uh, it's ecologically hippie. focused. Yeah, okay. It's where the uh, Jay Cafe was. Actually, my no, friend, no, uh, one of my best friends. That's San Diego. That's San Diego. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. Uh, yeah. Right. So, uh, yeah, no, Santa Cruz, though, is like super uh, like on the coast, uh, Northern California um, totally, town. Yeah. But but yeah, he was going to college up there because he also randomly put up pianos, become the teeth like before he was in the band with us, too. Yeah. Which is, like, crazy. Yeah, um, that was how he met him. And uh, at UC Santa Cruz, one of my best friends had just done her Ph.D. there and stuff. And, OK, it, you know, did lo- beautiful, beautiful place. But we, we went there and we were leaving. Uh, the show and this kid was going to want to stay there and somebody got locked down. So this dude had to like shimmy out one window and into like across like the first floor of this thing to get in. And they let us sleep in what was the quote unquote, the common room okay. uh, of this dorm room. And it was also, it was the first place that we had ever seen as a bunch of, you know, uh, kids um, from Scranton uh, had seen like a, a bath, like a non-gendered bathroom at that age, oh, you know? Sure. So like, girls and dudes were using the same bathroom we were it was like a uh at that point for us a culture shock because we were just like you know 18 year old i mean i had only worked shitty jobs like that yeah we were like holy shit the west coast is different this is a whole <laughs> new world this is really cool but yeah we stayed with elliot and we we're like what do you mean you can't smoke in here and uh the uh, reintroduced him again at the church in philly no, many years later oh that's awesome because yeah i think when when touche because i'm pretty sure touche played with what I, I we have record of it for sure, but was with Broadway calls and Menzingers, but that would have been even before yep. Ellie was in our band. So like that would like you yeah. would have met him through like a totally different. Oh thing. yeah, totally. Which was uh, on the same tour. Sorry, I just assumed that that oh, may no. have been a part of the same show. Yeah, but yeah, we played with you guys uh, with on that Broadway calls tour, which was amazing. That yeah, was the first time been, we were in the West Coast. It would have been um, in Riverside at a place yeah. called Hell like yeah. maybe it might have been like Pharaoh's Den or. Something like that. I don't expect you to remember yeah, that it, aspect. It kind of looked but, like a uh, old train. Well, the outside of the building kind of looked like an old train station a little bit. That could be. That could be. Yeah. Um. But yeah, we ended up becoming good friends with uh, the Broadway Calls guys because they were, you know, from the they're on the West Coast as well. Um. Yeah. How did you guys end up hooking up with them? Um. Was that just like looking for a band on the West Coast to do shows with? Like, what was what was the story there? Yeah, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, that was a MySpace kind of thing. You know, so we had music up and they had music up and they were like hey well you know we like your guys music you want to come out and tour with us on the west coast we went back and forth a bunch and we ended up like driving across the entire country to go on tour with this band that we had not met before that's awesome and uh sorry we had a, a booking agent um at the time ryan from outbreak and he he had known that kind of hardcore scene at the same time so it wasn't like a like just a myspace message but it was like facilitated kind of as blindly as it could be back then. And, and we ended up being lifelong friends with them. I still talk to Ty a lot. I love him. Uh, yeah, he, I went to Portland last year for my uh, birthday and hung out with Ty. It was fucking awesome. I love that. Yeah. I, I always enjoy running into him. Um, wow. Also Ryan from outbreak was a booking agent. I know he does think fast records that God, he's got his hand. He had his hand in everything. Yeah. Good, he was our booking him. agent. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, so I noticed also that that for that record, you guys went up to Chicago to record and you did it at uh, Atlas, which yeah. obviously has recorded some of the like most beloved Chicago punk records, you know, I can ever think of between like Alkaline Trio, Lawrence Arms, fucking Smoking Popes, like all of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, was that like, was that a studio that was kind of, uh, um, 
you know, like the beacon of like, oh man, we got to go do a record there because all of our favorite records are from there. Like, was that like the driving uh, inspiration? Yeah, it was. The, that was the anchor. That was like the the main driving force. We had, we had uh, so we met up with so Brendan Kelly from the Lawrence Arms who uh, had helped Toby with like A and R. Uh, Toby is the guy who owns Red Scare Industries, yes. which is what uh, the EP before that came out on. Uh, we went back to Jesse Cannon, recorded an EP. To, I think Toby was kind of like test. Brendan really wanted to sign us to Red Scare. Toby gave us a little test. He's like, "All right, do a little EP, see how it goes." Uh, we went to Jesse Cannon, recorded that EP, and then he's like, "Okay, we'll sign you and put out your record." And he had a relationship with um, Matt and everybody at well Matt at Atlas and with Brendan and we, you know all those legendary records that we loved so much were recorded there. And we could stay there and it was like everyone knew each other. Everything would stay on an even keel. And that was absolutely what drove us there. And it was such a fucking crazy experience. We recorded it in the winter, which is wild. But we oh, went up. Uh, yeah, we, we thought like, oh, yeah, we live in the hottest place. You know, Philadelphia becomes extremely hot and humid and gets extremely, extremely cold. We did not realize how fucking cold it was going to get uh, in Chicago. But yeah, we went and recorded there with Matt Allison. And uh, Justin Yates was the engineer on that. And just being in there, like Matt Skiba, uh, the guy from um, Alkaline Trio, left his bike there. So uh-huh. we like took his bike everywhere we needed to go. And there was just the amount of like, <laughs> you know, energy that we thought we were drawing and like uh, being starstruck was just huge when we recorded that record there. It was absolutely I, incredible. I, I can't remember if I read that. Does Brendan Kelly do back, does vocals, did he do vocals on that record or on the follow up record? It was on that record. Okay. That had to have been trippy, like just like yeah, it was shit. insane. Yeah, and he went and he did them in like a like two or three takes too, which was like we were also like, oh my god, this guy just goes in and does this, you know, this uh, <laughs> person who we've been listening to forever, and he's like, he's, he's hanging out. He brought his kid to the studio. Aww. He's uh, hanging out and buying us beer and pizza and just telling us all these old war stories and giving us like you know advice, solicited and unsolicited. It was absolutely incredible. Did uh okay? This is fun. This is just this is strictly for me. Um, it's fun to do these. I feel like Chicago bands are like the ones you can do this the most with. Uh, if you had to choose, what's uh what's your favorite Lawrence Arms record? And I also need to know what your favorite Alkaline Trio record is. Okay, so I actually was never a huge Alkaline Trio fan. Okay, that's fine. Um, uh, so my favorite record is the split they did with Hot Water Music. Okay. I mean, it's fucking, fucking it's great songs on it. Hey, yeah, uh, man. And my favorite Lawrence Arms record, it's really hard because, um, like, there's always a place in my heart. And, uh, uh, you know, growing up, the greatest story ever told is always going to be really important to me, especially for that part of my life and what, what I was going through. But I really, really, really like Metropole as well, which is one that they put out kind of recently, um, yeah. which also relates to my life now. So it's kind of, you know, rose tinted glasses, whatever you want to call it. That I feel like sometimes a new record that you like by a band that you've associated with, um, you know, growing up, that it's never going to live up to the certain aspects emotionally that it does um, as older records. But the new one's fucking great. I love it. So. Yeah, I, I'm I'm totally with you. Uh, and I think greatest story for me is the nostalgia factor record. Like that was the first record that I ever got into them from, and then went back and realized that like oh like apathy and exhaustion is almost just as good of a record you know like i I got super into all of that stuff but same exact um, thing yeah so uh you guys ended up signing to epitaph for 
uh, the record that we are about to be celebrating the uh, the ten year for. Um, yeah, was that just like the 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 label that you guys had to kind of aspired to, hopefully be on? Because I mean, going back to the the punkorama fucking compilations and all that sort of stuff, like, um, how how did that come your way? And like, what was that process like for you? Man, that was the yeah. We we couldn't have like you find some kid who grew up in South Philly plays baseball and ends up playing for the Phillies. That's what it felt like. We had our entire <laughs> lives wanted to sign to epitaph. That was the record label. And, um, you know, it actually happened. So we're extremely fortunate for it. The way, the way it came about, it's kind of fun. It, uh, it, it, it's actually, you know, since it's 10 years, but we also just found some of the equipment that we had used when we, we had done this. So back to Toby, we were going to do an acoustic record for Toby. So we started yeah. working on it in our kitchen. We all lived in the same house, um, like six of us on mountain street in South Philly, like the 500 block. So down between fifth and six, like fifth and task or whatever. So we're down there living in the same house. We are in the kitchen. We have the recording things like the multi-track unit set up in the kitchen. We would just every night work on the acoustic songs and kind of record them and stuff. Not kind of record them stuff. We would record them and stuff. <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> we got a bunch of them together. And Epitaph had reached out to either Toby uh, from Red Scare or to we just started working with um, Tim Zahodsky from Good Fight Entertainment, which was like spawned off of Ferret. Uh, yep. Old hardcore dude, played in One Dead, Three Wounded. He flew out to meet us. I mean, I'll tell you the story. It was 2010. We were on tour with the Gaslight Anthem. It was the first huge support tour we did actually a support tour for um anti-flag one time which is fucking incredible and then we uh did this big gaslight anthem one and it was in western canada and some shows in the northwest and they flew tim out to meet up with us in seattle and we were like manager what the fuck's a manager gonna do for us we do this you know as a bunch of completely uh, borderline alcoholic disorganized idiots we're like what's a manager gonna do for us but yeah, we're, we're, we're talking to him. And I think that's the first thing Craig said to him when we sat down for dinner. Uh, but we were working with him, who's one of our best friends in the entire world. And I, uh, you know, love him to death and talk to him every day. But he, Epitaph had talked to him, Arthur Toby, and they were interested in hearing some demos. And we just sent what we had recorded so far for the acoustic thing that we were working on for Toby. And they oh, got wow. them. Yeah. And, uh, the, oh, so the legend is that uh, one of the accountants, John, who the, Epitaph has like an open, I'm sure you've seen it, but and Epitaph has like an open office plan. Um, it's kind of like literally hierarchy. Like there's a, a second floor that's open with walls <laughs> and then you go down. But the guy who was one of the accountants would play us all the time. And Brett, who owns the label and also does uh, the, you know, is head of A&R as he, as he has himself, he liked it so much that he was like, yeah, we'll see what this band's working on. So we've been working on that acoustic EP, fucking around in the kitchen, sent it out. They loved it. And they're like, Hey, we're going to fly you guys to, to Los Angeles. And we are like, what the, the label of our dreams is going to pay for a plane ticket to send us to Los Angeles. So they flew us out there. Um, there's a, a guy full on, like a, like a huge Russian guy with a sign that had our name on it at the end of the thing who picked us up in like a big black SUV and took oh us God. to uh took us to the hotel and he was like do you guys want to stop anywhere on the way and we were like yeah we heard this in and out place is good can you stop there so he stopped at uh that fast food place and it was awesome and then we went to the office and Tim met us there and we were hanging out and Epitaph decided to have a barbecue like outside for us so they 
um, set up like a bunch of tables outside in the parking lot. They grilled a bunch of burgers and dogs. Brett brought out a bunch of cigars that he got from like a credit card thing, he said. And then we drank beers in the parking lot. And uh, one of the people that we had met there pulled us aside and was like, hey, we've never seen them do this before for a band. Like, this is this is cool. And um, that's what we did. Yeah, we hung out. Brett told us all these crazy stories about um, his run-ins with the law in, the I think, the late 90s or the yeah, it would have been the late 90s or whatever, and how I came sober and just like the whole history of the label and told us about what Smash, the Offspring record, did for them. And while he was <laughs> continues <laughs> he was driving to do us, for them. Yeah. yeah, what he continues to do for them. And he was driving <laughs> us home and he was getting phone calls from all these like famous people and bands that, you know, I remember he, we were, he had to move his like car seat to give us a ride back to the hotel in his personal car. And some guy, the guy from the dwarves was calling him like over and over again. And he kept like giving him the fuck you button. He's like, yeah, he keeps fucking calling me. I don't know. I'm like, you seriously, the guy from the dwarves is just calling you right now. And uh, yeah, it was just an incredibly magical experience. Uh, yeah. Was, yeah. It was amazing. It's- and then that night we went out to a couple bars with some of the other uh, 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 kids who worked at Epitaph and they had like an expense thing. And we were like, yo, the label's taking us out. So we called all of our friends from Los Angeles to meet up with us. <laughs> and we ran them up like a huge Big, big old barbell. And then, as you should, as you should, as you always should. And yeah, I mean, they could have just said nothing. They could have just brought us in and said, Hey, here's a contract. We would have just signed it. Yeah. They didn't have, yeah. Little did they know they they didn't have to wine and dine you, but you know, no, but just that whole thing was like the next level of, it was like a, you know, it's what you would write into a, uh, like a young adult novel or a movie that would be completely unbelievable, but actually actually going to happen for us. I'm almost sad that uh, we're from Los Angeles. So we uh, we just we just met fucking prep for lunch. We just had a <laughs> we didn't get the whole thing. I should have at least no. been. We should have been flown from Burbank to LAX to uh, <laughs> yeah exactly to have that, to have that experience. <laughs> um, okay. So uh, I love that you guys went back to uh, Matt Allison to do that record. What did yeah. you What do you think that uh, the pro of that was? Do you? I mean, just from my own experience like going back to a producer for the second time it's always nice because you kind of like you know how it goes there's a relationship now formed and also maybe the things that you wish you could have fixed or like done differently on the last record you now know going into it this next time like was that kind of sort of the the setup 100% yeah there was that's 100% it we one factor was that we knew and loved Matt we loved the records that he put out we knew uh, how we worked with him. We know he was really, really good at bringing out uh, the best of us. So w- with Matt, we didn't do too much like um, rearranging or excuse me, too much song craft, uh, did some things. Actually, that's not true. We did move a lot of things around, but we were very comfortable with Matt. He is so good at what he does. And um, so, like you said, it was, it was safer in the sense that we knew what we were getting into, but also we were able to improve on the things that, we hadn't done right the first time and we had more money this time. So we could go there for longer. So we went for longer. Um, I still, to this day, listening back to that record that we're doing on the 10 year anniversary, we realized that we didn't go for long enough. Like we kind of skimped out on backing vocals and heart, like a bunch <laughs> of other shit. Cause we really wanted to, we were having a party at the end of the record on the roof. We were like, all right, come on, finish the fucking vocals. I want to go upstairs. And that was how, how that kind of worked. But Matt was just, so good and knew the equipment and he knew us and we got along really well and he really took care of us, took us under his wing too. So we didn't, you know, there was also a part where we felt that we 
owed him uh, another shot with us. Like the same thing. Like he he should be along for the ride. Um, yeah, from that from the first time. Damn. Um, you know, uh, not to, not to just go record to record to record to record kind of a thing, but uh, I just have a quick question about the rented world record where you guys went to a dude named Jonathan Lowe yeah. and looking at his discography, I'm just like fascinated by it. Cause it's like, he's done a bunch of stuff for like the national, which is super cool. But then he yeah. randomly did a self-defense family record yeah. and then yeah. he did you guys like, so where, where did you hear of this guy? Like how did that relationship form? And like, what was that experience like? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And John, the most recent thing you could see, if you watch that, um, documentary about taylor Sli- t- sorry taylor swift's record where she's in like the woods or whatever um yeah i think the cover is her with like a plaid jacket on um yeah he's the engineer in, the, in that whole documentary in that video he's like hanging out there it's crazy. wow that's our boy john Lowe. so john Lowe yeah. is a, a a friend of ours he lived with and was good buds with um uh john loudon from restorations and he knew the restorations guys really well and we were really close friends with them and he did things sonically that we were really excited about. That was like the, he, he was one of those uh, uh, guys that really pushed for a, um, an authenticity in the sense that we did the drums and bass live to a lot of it. And we used like the preamp on the uh, Echoplex a lot. And we were really into just like being a little bit more darker and interesting uh, of a recording. But yeah, we knew him from John, and he was a really cool guy. And he worked at Minor Street, which is where um, Kurt Vile was like home base um, studio for him. And they did a whole bunch of different records there. And they had like, you know, a giant plate reverb in the basement. And John just was somebody that was our age. Well, first of all, I was in the city. So we, you know, like we could ride our bikes there or drive there every day. Um, was our age really exciting to work with, like was hungry in the sense that he was very passionate and not, you know, jaded, not that Matt was jaded or anything, but was like, you know, really excited about what he was getting into. And yeah, it's just a different energy. Yeah. Different energy. And we, that record we were trying to go, we saying darker is such like a goofy fucking thing to say, but we wanted to be a little bit more, um, uh, weird with kind of the ways that we had structured some of the songs and working with John was really inspiring. And they had a bunch of vintage gear there too, which was something that we had, you know, we didn't know anything about gear before. And we were like, wait, you could use this guitar that's from the actual sixties. Like that was a, a really exciting thing to do. And that's how, that's how we met up with John. Yeah. Damn. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. I was just like, when I was doing the research and I looked, I was like, Oh my God, he's worked on so many just like incredible, like indie records. But then, yeah, also did like self-defense family i'm like i'm fascinated right. by this guy's yeah he, he know, fucking like, he loves music man like he, yeah he, he loves music and he's really really good uh you know, as you know the some of the best parts about producers is the way that they're able to navigate the interpersonal relationships of everybody in the band totally. or the way that they're allowed they're able to get you to perform a certain way when you're feeling you know vulnerable or the opposite if you're being too much sure. too cocky uh and he he was really good at that in a very subtle way like he really was like able to just be straightforward his personality not like injected into the moment he's yeah he's fucking awesome um and then obviously the last two records you guys have gone to will yip and was that what was uh it's funny i feel like between your location all of our friends 
you know, like all yeah. of our friends. Was it what did did the curiosity with him start just being like, okay, there's there's got to be something here. I, everyone else is going to him around here, like, or did you have a prior relationship with Will? Like, how did that how did that all come together? So we had we had a million mutual friends. Of but course. we did not have a prior relationship with Will. In fact, I could be, and sorry, Will, if, if, you ever, if you ever listened to this and I got this wrong, I don't think I met him until we went and met. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Sure. We met him. He did, front, he, he actually did a live sound for Title Fight at a, oh. it's funny, I'm, gonna, I'm bringing up 311 and Title Fight this whole time. Two bands that I fucking love, don't, don't mind one bit. But he, uh, <laughs> they did a record release show in a like moose lodge type place in the middle of fucking nowhere in Luzerne County, Pennsylvania. And Will was there and he did front house. We met him there very briefly. So that was the first time I met Will. He was, uh, you know, seemed awesome. He was stoked. But then we went up and met him at studio four and just hit it off. Same reasons that we loved uh, John. He was, you know, right alongside of us in his career. He was, um, had done so many great things. He we he was really quick to getting. We talked about it actually before we started recording. He was Will's a guy who was really good at cutting through the not semantics, but like the 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 unnecessary parts of communicate the formalities of communication before getting to what you're like really getting at without being a fucking dick. You know, you're not gonna be like stop talking, tell me what you want. But he is very good at getting the substance quickly while you're speaking. And uh, yeah, he's become now one of my best friends, one of our band's best friends. We talk constantly. I fucking love that guy so goddamn much. But to answer your question in a very roundabout way, the first way we found him was because we knew that he had done records with so many of our friends. And we kind of like, you know, back channel called them. We're like, hey, what's up with this Will guy? And they all had right. uh, uh, great things to say about him. We're like, all right, we're going to go meet him. We'll go meet up with them, see what we're going to do. And then, yeah, we recorded those two records and I could not be fucking happier. <laughs> yeah, dude, it's awesome. I mean, yeah, that's that's kind of what I was getting at, too, even with asking that question. It's like with your location with all of your friends with like all of that sorts of thing like it gets to a point where you probably have to be looking at each other in your band and being like i mean we got to do this right like we got to at least we got to try it too like it seems like a thing to just we got to try at least once you know oh, yeah absolutely that's so fun totally we we're like this there's this guy apparently he's some kind of like miracle worker and he's also <laughs> the coolest dude and everyone loves him that's which of yeah. course put us off at first we were like i don't know something's got to be going on here nobody <laughs> is that cool nobody's like that great and it turns out will is you know <laughs> yeah, yeah proximity is perfect it's like so it's you know the studio is in the city but it's not so it takes right. you know there we have to drive there together for like 40 minutes or you can take the train there and just like all of that was fantastic to be kind of farther away removed from our house and stuff but still be able to go home and go to bed at night yeah one thousand percent. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, shit, man, I'll hit you with the last question, which is uh, when was the first time you felt like you were doing the thing you'd been working so hard towards? So you sent me this quite full disclosure. You sent me this before this. And I was thinking of two things. And one of them, the main one has to be. That flight to Epitaph. So we had not been some of us had not never been on an airplane before. I was on an airplane when I was like 12 or something. But uh, we had never been on an airplane, and our dream label was paying for us to fly to Los Angeles, which we had been to only you know like one time before, but not like in Los Angeles, Los Angeles whatever. We got put in yeah, a you hotel. Riverside, in, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then and we played the uh, Knitting Factory in like you know West Hollywood or whatever okay. that was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, we got flown out and put in a hotel 
uh, like we didn't have money to buy Christmas presents. You know, it was like, it was a, it was a fucking, it was incredible. They, they flew us out there, our dream label. We're sitting there on the plane. We get picked up by somebody taken there, but, but, but on that actual plane ride where there was no cell phone service, there's nothing. You just kind of really realized, all right, all of the, you know, destroyed jobs and relationships and like whatever bullshit that we had to go through, which looking back on it is really romantic, but at the time it was, you know, kind of, kind of upsetting to do all that. And being on that airplane with the three, you know, three other members of the band was really kind of want to know, realize like, Hey, this is, this is it. This is like actually working. And that was, uh, that was, a, that definitely, yeah, it's like a very like almost famous moment where you're just yeah. like, Holy shit. Like this totally. is like, this. How did I, how did this happen? It's like, this a, is... it's like a movie that you wouldn't believe. It's like, well, there's, you know, like people are like, Hey, I wish I could get discovered. Like nobody gets discovered. Even for us, somebody had to know somebody. Um, but for us, it literally felt like an almost famous moment. Yeah. We were just right on the plane and, and, and going out there. It's so pure too, because you're, you're with your friends that you've been doing this whole thing with. And at the same time, you're also trying to figure out how you're supposed to behave in yeah. this moment too. <laughs> like, do yeah, I, absolutely. Do I put on, like, do I have, do I have to put on a persona? Like I'm going to act like I need to act cooler, but then like the guys next to me are going to know I'm putting on a persona. So oh, of course I'm going to get called out. Yeah. That could, we could do a whole other podcast on that and how it relates to punk rock <laughs> and like, <laughs> you know, how you want to, to, to put your, your square peg into the round hole. But the, uh, yeah, totally just completely surreal and unreal. Yeah. Did you say, you said you had two or was, or are we going with that one? Yeah. So the, well, the other one I was going to talk about was like yeah. the first time that we had gone on tour, we got to the South and I had met someone and I couldn't understand a word they were saying. I was at a venue and um, there was all kinds of kids partying and another band playing and we were drinking and it was our turn to come up to play next. And, you know, we played a show and people that we didn't know sang along to the songs because they had heard them on the Internet. That was the other moment I can think of where I was like, oh, my God, I'm so far away from my house. I'm going further away from my house. And, uh, you know, all of these recording that we had done, all this like work we put into this is actually is working, you know, whatever level it was, it was, it was working. So, yeah. That's a, amazing. That's like also the most, you know, magical situation ever where you're like, <laughs> I am so far from home. This is a completely different everything. And someone here knows a single word. That's like the best feeling yeah. in the entire world. Yeah. I mean, we were propped, we were like set up by, you know, uh, this band could be your life and all these like uh, different stories you heard on the internet and books that we yeah. read and, and actually kind of, we just kind of like, cargo cult almost emulated it and it and it worked <laughs> perfect thanks so much for hanging out with me today tom uh, thanks so to much for having you're, me you're i can't best. fucking wait this tour is gonna be so goddamn fun it's gonna be the best it's gonna be the best <laughs> all right man And that is our show. Thank you so much to Tom for being here. And thank you for listening. Reminder, head on over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon to get access to this bonus episode where Tom answered questions that were submitted by subscribers and come out and check out this tour. It starts tomorrow in New Jersey and uh, it ends in San Francisco. Go to toucheamore.com slash tour to see all of the dates. And lastly, If you haven't subscribed to the show on Spotify or Apple or wherever it is you're listening to this, please do so. And leaving a positive rating and review helps oh so much. All right. I'll see you next week. Take care. Hope to see you on the road. Bye-bye.